0: Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. That
1: psalm we just sang proclaims God's greatness. We magnify His name and His word. One way we do that is by confessing our sins. Psalm 86 again calls us to confession. Hear God's word. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer and attend to the voice of my supplications. In the day of my trouble, I will call upon you, for you will answer me. Thus far the reading of God's word. I chose these verses for our call to confession for a simple reason. Uh, Often, when the psalmist makes a resolution, it points us to something that we're not doing and should be doing. And so is the case here. When we run into trouble, we often forget to call upon the Lord for help. We assume the problem is too small to bother him with, or it's too big for him to really change. We assume he won't answer, and we go and find our own solutions instead of taking refuge in God. So I urge you to cultivate the habit of turning to God in response to everything that happens to you, good or bad. People of God, let us come. Let us worship and bow
0: down.
1: We're continuing on in our series in Acts, Acts chapter six this week, and just the first seven verses. After this passage, we get into the, the Stephen episode. So I thought we'd just take half of this chapter and consider uh, what the apostles do here first. Let's read Acts chapter 6, the first seven verses. Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith the grass withers the flower fades this word of god stands forever and god's people said amen Amen. let's pray lord god we pray that as we have been reading your word throughout this service that it would be uh, a word that does not return to you void but that it bears fruit that that it does the work that your spirit intends that it do lord let us not quench the spirit by resisting your word by being distracted from it, by um, thinking only intellectually about it. Let your word penetrate our hearts, change our desires and our uh, intentions, so that we might be more conformed to the image of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. The great American theologian, Bono, of U2, just kidding, once wrote a song called Vertigo, which I enjoy. And the first verse, the lyrics, his lyrics are often provocative, interesting. Uh, Here's the first verse. The lights go down, it's dark. The jungle is your head, can't rule your heart. A feeling so much stronger than a thought. Your eyes are wide, and though your soul it can't be bought, your mind can wander. That's Bono's vertigo. And it's part of the theme today. The theme today is one of distraction. We may have all the best intentions in the world, but we often get distracted. So here in this passage, we see the church withstanding an attack, an attack of distraction and disputing. And the church withstands this attack by appointing deacons. And so we're going to look at that in detail here today and then apply to our lives. You've got an outline in the bulletin there, and we'll simply walk through that. First the problem, then the solution, and then the result, and then some principles to apply. So in the first two verses here, you have uh, the dispute, uh, the grumbling. I'm going to call it grumbling for a little bit. In those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists. We'll get into the exact complaint later. But think first just about this idea that there's a complaint. Just like Israel grumbled against Moses after their redemption from Egypt, just like Israel grumbled against Joshua when they made peace with the Gibeonites, so the church grumbles here. Hope you can see that parallel. There's differences, of course. I'll get into that. But just like last week where we talked about how there's a parallel between uh, Achan uh, in Joshua and Ananias and Sapphira, so here we see another parallel. Right after the redemption is accomplished, there's a dispute, a complaint. The early church is filled with the Holy Spirit. They're generous. They're open-hearted. But they're not perfect. And here we see disputing and grumbling. Now, now for the difference, right? The problem was not grumbling, disputing, or complaining. Notice that in this case, as opposed to all the others in the Old Testament, the complaint is justified. That's the difference, of course. We should do everything without complaining or arguing, scripture says. But that doesn't mean that we may never raise a question or a concern. I think it was right for the complaint to be raised if the Hellenistic Uh, widows are not getting their share of the distribution so uh, they bring up this complaint we are not rebels to petition our legislatures for godly policy and laws Uh, with our children we should talk about this they need to be given an opportunity to respond to a request right sometimes it goes like this son go take out the garbage but mom i don't want to hear that i want you to say yes ma'am Go take out the garbage. But, Mom, are you disobeying me? But, Mom, Dad took it out a few minutes ago. <laughs> oh. But Mom, isn't always rebellious, right? Or a question about why we're doing this. when it When is it right to raise a question, even a complaint, which may cause a stir in the group? When is that selfish? Uh, wisdom and reason and the word of God dictate this. So parents and all leaders need to be open to a response and to criticism like the apostles are here. So you have this dispute. What's this dispute about? Uh, The Hebrews are, um, there's a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. So this is interesting. The early church has a daily distribution, a vibrant benevolence fund is what's going on here. But apparently those serving aren't too interested in serving the Greek-speaking Jews. Now, we don't know if the neglect was intentional or if it was just bad organization. Uh, Maybe the apostles just weren't very good administrators. Or maybe there was some prejudice going on without their knowledge. Uh, We're not sure of the details, but it seems if it was only poor organization that a distinct group wouldn't get the short stick. So it does seem to be a bit of prejudice here. These Hellenists, Hellenist is just a, the Greek word for Greek, uh, so they're not necessarily Greek in, in, um, in their race, but they're probably Jews who speak Greek is what's going on. This isn't so much a racial difference as it is a cultural one, a cultural difference. They're all Jews, but some speak Greek, and not Hebrew, not Aramaic. And probably because they've grown up in Greek cities in the Diaspora, outside of Israel. And there's a condescension from the Israelites who live in Jerusalem towards them. Just like there was a condescension from Jerusalem uh, dwellers against those in Galilee, right? Same thing. He's from Galilee, we hear about Jesus. There's that kind of uh, condescension. So people always make a pecking order and put themselves at the top and they find some issue to define them as the best, right? If you don't speak our way, if you don't do our thing, if you don't think like us, then we look down on you. And that's how the root sin of pride often works. And, and you see that working out here, the, the heart sin comes out in the uneven distributing of food, favoring the Hebrews over the Greeks. So that's the dispute. Now, notice that the, the growth of the church is causing this problem. Right? God has designed us as people, as families, as organizations to grow. And different problems arise at different stages of growth. Right, A, a church of 50 has different problems than a church of 200, has different problems than a church of 1,000. So you have different needs. Uh, you need some organization as you get bigger. You don't want to hinder the spirit, but it helps to coordinate. Uh, in our circles, in our church, we like um, relationships and needs to be met organically, not not artificially imposed with some program. But there is some coordination that's important. Uh, many Christians bemoan how the early church went from a free-form ideal gathering to a hierarchical institution, and I think that's somewhat misguided. We see right here in the New Testament church organizing. Appointing elders, appointing deacons to follow after the apostles. Growth brings problems that call for some organization. And that's what they're doing here. Uh, Now back up a second. Remember the bigger picture in Acts? The last few chapters, uh, Satan has tried to draw the church's heart away from Christ through persecution and through compromise. Right? Haul them up before the Sanhedrin. Tell them not to preach about Christ. They've withstood those attacks. It didn't work. So now Satan tries to distract them, to confuse them, to bring a dispute in amongst them. And we often, didn't have this in my notes, but I just want to emphasize this, we often, especially today with all the culture war stuff going on, we often get focused on the outward attacks that are coming from outside of us. And those are real, but just as much emphasis is given in Scripture, like here, to attacks that come at us from within. This is a dispute within the body and disputes amongst us that have nothing to do with unbelievers outside, those are just as dangerous as any uh, agenda out there that's ungodly, that's being foisted upon society. So that's what they're dealing with. And we need to realize here that the church here has good intentions, but there's also something uh, wonky going on, right? Good intentions and resolutions are not sufficient in your life. You need planning and coordination and leadership. That's what we're going to see uh, the apostles give in a, in a moment. You know, take a young couple that's zealous to, to uh, educate their children in a, in a Christian way. They're going to homeschool or they're going to send their kids to a Christian school. That, that zeal is good and it's needed, but that zeal is not sufficient. You're, not, you're always going to be asking, Are we doing enough? Are we going too fast? Are we going too slow? Are the kids learning what they need to learn right now? It's important to, to address those questions together as parents and, and, not, um, and not just leave it, husband shouldn't just leave it all to the wife for one thing, but you need to plan and coordinate and have leadership there. Uh, so there's, that's an edu- educational realm where good intentions aren't enough. You need planning, you need leadership. Same is true, for example, let's say in the kitchen. Right? You can have the best intentions for your meal. You, want, you, you have a vision of a romantic dinner tonight with your, uh, with, with, with your spouse. But if you bungle the recipe, it isn't going to turn out. <laughs> you, you've got to plan and coordinate. Right? It takes more than zeal. Uh, so you get the idea. Uh, uh, let's move on to now to the solution. Uh, what is the solution when the good intentions aren't cutting it? You've got this dispute going on. The solution is leadership in verse 6. In verse, uh, excuse me, in verse 3. Therefore, uh, no, come back to verse 2. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples. And they say it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God. So the twelve summon the multitude. They g- get everybody together. Time for a congregational meeting. So that, that's the first thing. Uh, and I've got several things to say here about leadership. Leaders initiate so if there's, a, if there's something going wrong in the family or in the church, then the parents or the leaders get everybody together. Hey, we've got to talk about this. Uh, they, they assemble their followers. Uh, take initiative to fix the problem. Uh, this is a logistical thing that husbands need to do with their families. Get the family together. There are certain times to do that. Now, you may want to get your own act together first. You might need to go around repenting. The individual family members. You want to be thinking about where you're going to lead your family, what you're going to say, what you want the family to do together. The solution here is for leaders to initiate. There's a good example of this in the book of Judges. In Judges 4, you have the story of Deborah and Barak. Right? Barak is the um, commander of the army. Deborah is the prophetess. And she calls on him to go out and fight against Sisera and the Ammonites. And Barak basically says to her, well, if you go with us, then I'll go. But if you don't go, then I'm not going to go. Which is kind of a wimpy response. Like, I I, I don't know. You you could read it also that I need God to be with us. That's possible. But it seems a little wimpy in, in in the moment. Well, after the battle, they win. And then Deborah sings this beautiful song in Judges 5 and the first line of the song is this when leaders lead in Israel when the people willingly offer themselves bless the Lord it's a great line and it gives both sides right. leaders have to lead and when the leaders lead the people have to willingly offer themselves and when both of those things happen what a blessing that is and that's what we see in Acts chapter 6 So leaders initiate, leaders plan. Uh, They have the congregation choose the men and then present them to the apostles for approval. So that's interesting. The the apostles basically say, okay, we've gotten the whole church together. Why don't you all pick the seven men to take care of this? (laughs) So the leaders don't appoint the men. They tell the, the multitude, you choose the seven men. And so they do. And I take it here as a given that the apostles could have vetoed any of these, but they don't. Uh, And so the leaders plan, they set forth a process. Leaders then cultivate more leaders. That's the third thing. Initiating, planning, cultivating. And here we want to talk about the word deacon, right? The the leaders are cultivating uh, servants, deacons here. The word deacon and the office of deacon that doesn't appear in this passage with our English word. But the word, uh, the Greek word diakonia, does show up three times in these seven verses. Uh, many people don't uh, hesitate to say that this is the establishment of the office of deacon. I don't really understand that. It, it's the same role deacons today have appointed by the elders to assist with the material needs of the church to allow the elders to devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word that's exactly what our modern office of deacon is all about so this Greek word diakonia does show up three times here in this passage in verse 1 you see the daily distribution that's a diakonia in verse 2 they're serving tables and the verb serve there is the same diakonia And then in verse 4, the ministry of the word is also called a diakonia of the word. So from this, you get the idea of what the word means. And it might be a little bit different than you think. The, the, The word diakonia, not the office now I'm saying, not the office of deacon, but any kind of service, diakonia, it means what you're doing is you're giving something that is not yours to another in service to God does that make sense what I'm doing right now is diakoneum I'm ministering the word to you I'm giving you something that is not mine <laughs> I'm not giving you my opinions I'm not just giving you my thoughts I'm giving you this that's diakoneum okay so the apostles were giving food they were in the daily distribution that food was not their own. It was given to them, to the widows, to serve to them. Now they have others take over this same ministry. So diaconia can mean any service generally. And here the apostles single out a certain kind of service that they are not called to. We're not called to that service of serving the food. They need others to do that. That's, I'll come back to that later, but in case I forget, that, that's really important. It's, it, it's a broad concept. All of us are doing diaconia, right? We have certain people with, with musical talent in this church who play the piano for us, the keyboard. And sometimes we think, man, that's, they've got such a talent to do that. But realize that that's diaconia. They're, they're giving us something that's not theirs. And that, that's where the trick comes in is, you know, With someone with musical talent myself, I often get to thinking, that's my thing. But it's God-given, right? I'm I'm giving this God-given talent, I'm using that, and I'm giving it to the body. It's something that's not mine, and so I'll play and do that for the body. All of us have things like that, where we have certain gifts, certain acts that are God-given. And so we're called to minister those to the body. Moving on. Ministry is another word for this. Uh, We talk about uh, full-time Christian ministry today sometimes where you're supported by the church financially uh, to be a pastor or a missionary. Or you have a ministry today, we say. Have a ministry. Which basically means you have an audience big enough to support an organization to support your, your livelihood. What the Bible means by ministry is a specific role of service. Cleaning the building after church. Volunteering at Love, Inc. (laughs) Babysitting for a family that needs it. Bringing a meal to someone. Fixing cars for people in the church. These are ministries. One ministry mentioned in the New Testament is someone carrying an offering from Turkey to Jerusalem to present it to the saints there. That's a ministry, a ministry of delivering uh, money that's needed. So counting and depositing the offering at church, that's a ministry. There's countless ways that we serve. So that's part of what's going on. Leaders uh, initiate, leaders plan, and and leaders cultivate more leaders. Leaders um, foster that kind of ministry that we're talking about. Uh, Fourth, leaders are undistracted. They know their calling. Here you get back to the main theme. The attack here is partly one of distraction. Right? If we can get the apostles to just serve tables all day and stop um, preaching the gospel, that, that'll blunt the, the growth of the church. That's, that's the attack here. The leaders are undistracted. They know their calling. They know they can't leave the word. Now, they're not demeaning the ministry of benevolence or cooking or serving food when they say it's not our calling to serve tables. They're not demeaning that. They just know their responsibility is not to get caught up in doing a different job. Their calling is prayer, the ministry of the word. And this doesn't mean just private study and prayer like monks. That's not what they mean. They're called to a public office. Right? Prayers here can also mean worship. Right? The apostles, I, I think at this point, are leading worship. Uh, the ministry of the word means teaching it and preaching it. This is why we read from 1 Timothy 4, uh, verse 13. Till I come, give attention to reading, the the public reading of Scripture, that means, to exhortation, to doctrine. Don't neglect the gift that's in you. Paul's telling Timothy this, right? Applies to all the apostles, applies to every elder. Uh, Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them. Take heed to yourself. Continue in this. So the leaders are undistracted. Uh, according along these lines. Two more things about what the leaders are doing here. Notice uh, next that the leaders are open to new things. Uh, the, the detail I want to point out here is in verse 5 and 6. Verse 5, I guess. The, the multitude, the church, chooses Stephen, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, who is a proselyte from Antioch. Now, the interesting t- thing to note about that list is that every name on that list is of Greek origin. That's what's cool about this passage, I think. The apostles tell the church, you guys decide who's going to handle this. And the church chooses all Greeks. What was the dispute? The Hebrews were withholding food from the Greek widows. So it's not said outright in the passage but i think when you read between the lines the church basically says all together yeah this is a bad deal what's going on we're gonna we're gonna have the greeks be in charge of making sure the greeks don't get overlooked in the daily distribution of the food and the apostles say great so notice here the leaders are open to new things right uh, these apostles are the most you could say they're the most conservative group ever Right? They are devoted to maintaining and witnessing to the teaching, the death, the life, the resurrection of Jesus. They are not going to waver from that. They write the New Testament uh, to make because of that goal. And yet this same group is very open to including Greek-enculturated Jews in the leadership of the church. They're open to new things. It's a very early acknowledgement that the gospel is going to not be confined to Israelite culture. It's going to be translated into every other culture. That's what Jesus told us to do. Go to the nations. Disciple the nations. So they're open to new things here in this regard. Not innovation in doctrine or teaching. That's not what we mean. But open to how the Spirit draws different people to faith in Christ. Uh, It shows, too, how they're open to hearing these new ideas from the church, right? The, the, The apostles become aware of this dispute. They bring the church together. They have a plan. It's like, okay, let's, you guys pick some men to take care of this. And by picking those kinds of men, the church makes clear what they want to do. And the apostles say, okay, that sounds right. So there's a little bit of deference here, right, even from the apostles, to the church to say, what are we gonna do? Yeah, that sounds right. They're, so they're hearing from the church and leaders need to do that. They're open to new things. The last thing is the leaders are empowering. Verse six, uh, they set them before the apostles and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. There's, a, there's an ordination happening here. They're giving authority to fill an office. So in front of everybody, the apostles are saying, okay, everybody, these deacons have authority now to manage this dispute so in other words to put it a bit bluntly don't come crying to us if these deacons decide it this way and you don't like that they're in charge that's what the apostles do here they've empowered the deacons to to manage this the result, verse 7 the word spreads the number of the disciples multiplies greatly so, again, the word can't spread if, if the word is neglected. And the apostles have managed not to do that. We're going to stick with the word, keep preaching that word. This isn't going to distract us. The church grows. The reason for this is that the word is planted in the early church. It hasn't been choked out by the cares and the distractions of this world. Like Jesus said in his parable. So, Satan has tried to draw the church's heart away through persecution, through compromise. It didn't work. Uh, So he tries to distract them and and cause disputes among them. That attack fails too because the apostles lead the church well, led by the Spirit. The last thing to note in our passage is the priests. The priests convert. That's an interesting one that's mentioned. I have a theory about that. Uh, Those who know the word best... Those who depend on the benevolence of the temple are the priests. And in much of Israel's history, the priest and the Levite and the poor were neglected and left to fend for themselves. That's one of the things the prophets often bring up that we tend to uh, overlook. The book of Acts gives the polar opposite, a positive picture, where the church provides for the poor and for the priest. And that must have been very attractive to the temple priesthood who saw their own leaders neglect the blind and the lame who were on their very doors. It's a strong contrast that sometimes we miss. They saw the economic exploiting of people by the priests. Then they look over to the apostles who are healing the lame and the blind, who are giving freely to the temple. Uh, Excuse me, to the people. It's astounding. And there's a good example of this, too, in Scripture. You know, go for a convergence here of the apostles are, the apostles are um, not neglecting the word and, and this idea of the priests being provided for, the poor being provided for. It's in Leviticus 23, verse 22. If you want to go there sometime, I'm not going to take the time right now. But it's in the passage where it's describing the feasts and what you need to do during the feasts. And I am going to go there. And it says, and this is during the, um, the first fruits, weeks, which is the feast of Pentecost. Believe it or not, we just had Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, right? What does it say at the end of the instructions on what to do during Pentecost? Leviticus 23:22. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field when you reap. Nor shall you gather any gleaning from your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. The apostles are reading that because they just had Pentecost. So they know we better not neglect the poor, especially not during Pentecost season. And so you have this command of generosity. This is the whole book of Ruth, by the way, is built around this as well uh, Boaz is allowing the poor to glean in his field because he's generous the apostles are also fulfilling scripture, they're making sure that the community is generous to those who are in need so the, the, the apostles are um, fulfilling scripture um, following scripture and the result is that the word spreads the church grows So let's uh, take a moment for some application here, some principles of leadership. Leaders give, leaders delegate. That's the first one. Uh, Leaders give and delegate. So we read from Jethro for this reason. Moses needed to delegate some of his judging uh, authority to others uh, so that he wouldn't wear himself out. You have the same thing in Numbers 11 with the elders who are uh, established to help Moses. Uh, Others need authority to have a functioning and healthy community. You know, visibly, just talk brass tacks here a second in, in the community that we have. Visibly, you see me up here 90% of the time doing all the talking, authority giving. But that there's a bit of an optical illusion there. I am not the one with 90% of the authority here, and I shouldn't be. Leaders need to be delegating and, and giving uh, things that need to be done, decisions that need to be made to others. Same thing happens in families. As families have older children, older children need practice being in charge and being responsible for more and bigger things. Right? First, you know, they're, they're five, they're eight, they can do some chores on their own. And then they grow and they can be home alone. And then they grow and they can watch other people's children. And then they grow and they can drive alone. And then they grow and they can take care of the house overnight if mom and dad go away for a few days. Bring them up, Ephesians 6, 4 says. Bring them up so that you don't need... Excuse me. Bring them up so that they don't need you to serve God anymore. That's the goal. Not that, they won't, not that they'll stop honoring you or that they'll ignore you. That's not the point. The point is for them to, be, to become independent and be able to serve God themselves. So one, just one brass tax application for you in that here at church, if you ever see an elder or a deacon doing a job that any church member could do, jump on that. Volunteer to take it off their hands and do it yourself once in a while. Help your leaders delegate where you can. That's a general... Principle, I would say, leaders give and delegate. They they have other people uh, help uh, with the needs of the body. Uh, So that's number one. Leaders delegate. Number two, leaders teach by what they do. Uh, They're they're teaching by actions here, right? The apostles don't get involved in this, and by not getting involved, they're saying this isn't our territory. This is for somebody else to do. They give it to the Greek deacons by doing that. They're teaching that the Greeks have a legitimate place in the church. Right? You don't have to be a Jerusalem native to be in the inner circle of the church. Right? You don't have to be, have been a part of this church for 10 years before we'll really accept you. That's not how it should go. That's not how it goes. Leaders lead by what they tolerate, what they allow to stand. Parents, uh, you probably exercise leadership most often in this way, deciding when to let some behavior go and when not to. That, that's leadership. And that's, uh, those are critical decisions we make. So leaders teach by the, their actions, by what they do. Third, leaders exist to serve. right? You know this, but almost every passage in the Bible that refers to authority links it to service in some way. Uh, Ephesians 4, uh, Ephesians 5.25, 1 Peter 5, Romans 13. Leadership and authority needs to be given... Uh, So complaints and disputes don't have free reign to escalate into blood feuds or civil war, (laughs) right? You need to take care of that. And the ideal situation is to give as much leadership as is needed to nip small problems in the bud. And, And if leaders ignore that problem, that's not good. But on the other end, if they come down too hard and micromanage and lose perspective, that's not good either. The apostles avoid both here. They don't ignore the problem, they do address the problem. But they let the church pick the men and give them the authority they need. So they're serving the body in that way, you see. They're helping the body to function well. They're not, they're not uh, sapping the body of energy and strength, they're giving the body what it needs. That's what leaders are called to do. Fourth, church elders teach. And, and we see that. The apostles' ministry, they had a unique way of serving God prayer, studying, preaching, writing scripture. Uh, They pass this on to the elders, uh, and so elders, church elders, teach. Uh, Now all elders don't have to preach, but they do need to be able to explain and to defend doctrine in conversation with others. Uh, The the church has seen it uh, fitting to set aside some men who are apt to teach, uh, to study and write and preach as they're living. And that's a big financial sacrifice uh, to make for the church. But it reflects the church's commitment to be devoted to the apostles' teaching. Right? I mean, just again to say it in brass tacks, the, what's the, the intent there is that you should have a high expectation of sound teaching in the pulpit on Sundays. Because we're committing a fair bit of financial resources to have someone who can do that. That's the goal. I like what John Stott says about this. He says it this way. The apostles were not too busy for ministry, but they were preoccupied with the wrong ministry. So are many pastors. Instead of concentrating on the ministry of the word, they become overwhelmed with administration. Sometimes it's the pastor's fault. He wants to keep all the reins in his own hands. This is all stuff. Sometimes it's the people's fault. They want the pastor to be a do-it-all man. In either case, the consequences are disastrous. The standards of preaching and teaching decline. The pastor has little time to study or pray. The people do not exercise their God-given gifts since the pastor does everything himself. For both reasons, the congregation is kept from growing into maturity in Christ. So that's stop. And that's uh, just specifically, that's one way that you can pray for me, for the elders, for the deacons, to not get distracted from the word and prayer by more minor Things or, or administrative things. So that's, uh, the, let's see, the leaders um, are, are called to teach. Two more things and then I'm done. Uh, one is on the deacons and then one is every Christian. So the deacons ministry, of course, is highlighted here, right? Please take note of the role. Remember your deacons, Robert and Nathan. We're putting Nathan up for election soon Uh, consider if you are called to this role along with them and and when you pray for your church family take any thoughts that might be helpful uh, to uh, your deacons in a small church like ours deacons are there to set up the service count the money write the checks that's about it it's much more than that in the bible notice what the whole context here of Acts six If a dispute arises about any material matter in the church, that's the principle here. So let's think of a few. Who who should order the flowers? What's the congregational um, meal going to look like? When will the next picnic be? Whether to help a family financially or not? Who should be in charge of the next social event? When these kinds of questions come up, the elders, as I read it in Acts, in Acts 6, the elders should expend no energy on them at all. There are matters that should be referred to the deacons for a decision. And that's a pattern that the church almost never follows. <laughs> when we read of this kind of situation, especially if it's cultural, even maybe racial, we have a racial dispute in the early church The elders better take care of that. That's not what Scripture says. Scripture says it's way more important for the elders to stick with the word and preach the word and do that. Let's have the deacons handle the racial disputes. Whoa. So, the deacons' ministry is is much greater, much more authoritative than we may give it credit for. Uh, A positive positive point to make here. I find an analogy in family life very helpful here. This this may offend some, I don't know. I I just think there's an analogy, so let me tease it out a bit. Uh, The husband is much like the elder, and the wife is much like the deacon. Each has a complementary and different role. The husband, the elder, rules. The wife, the deacon, helps and serves. Uh, It doesn't make the wife or deacon inferior, it's a different role. The wife and the deacon, they're eager to take things off the husband, the elder's plate, so that the elder, the husband, can do their real job better. The husband, the elder, they need to give the wife, the deacon, the leadership and the resources to do their job well. The husband and the elder is a fool if he's not going to consult the wisdom of his wife, of the deacons, when there's an important matter before the family or the church. Quite an interesting analogy, I think. Of course, there's ways that breaks down, but uh, so that's uh, part of how the deacon's ministry should be seen. Last of all, every Christian is a minister with a ministry. Uh, you know, we think of minister, capital M. You know, every now and then Sherwood sure will call me Domini, for example. Domini is the Dutch word for minister, Lord, the pastor in charge, right? Every, every Christian, every church member is a minister with a ministry so elders should be training men to do what they do right Nathan uh, comes and visits us every now and then, Nathan Brunau, he was a pro tem elder here uh, his two sentence answer to what an elder is about is this, he says elders have to have hard conversations with sheep who are straying that's what elders do Well, parents need to have hard conversation with older children who are doubting, who are wondering, maybe who are straying. Parents of 14, 15-year-olds can learn a lot from elders who have spent years uh, doing shepherding visits with church members who are straying from the fold. Deacons should be showing other church members the ropes so more can serve. If you weren't sure what your ministry is yet, how you can serve here or elsewhere, keep your eyes open, keep your ears open. Ask if you can help with something that looks interesting. Uh, and if you're in that job, be on the lookout for others to train and to include in your work. This isn't easy. Uh, it's, it's so much easier to just do the job yourself, right? Remember, lots of stories I have from our family, extended family, of that, where mom is trying to teach kid how to iron. But she just gets so frustrated. She's like, "Give me the iron. I'll do it myself." Right? That's so much easier. It takes a lot of time, a lot of work, to cultivate skills and leadership in others. But it's worth it, and we need to be doing that. So, uh, this is an important calling. The church here withstands an attack on uh, uh, an attack of distraction and disputing, and they appoint deacons. And this uh, rules Christ's church well. This brings glory to Christ. We're, we're living, uh, we're uh, planning, uh, the, we're, we're having the body of Christ function as he meant it to. Uh, it, the body for which he died. And so let us pursue this calling. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for giving us your word. It's so eminently practical today. Uh, We pray that you would help us and help us to understand uh, how we can uh, be a part of the body, uh, a member, uh, an arm, a leg, uh, a foot, an eye uh, that participates and that contributes to the need of the body. Thank you for our head, Jesus Christ. Uh, He has uh, done great things for us. And he is calling for us uh, to serve him. And Lord, as uh, he does this, we pray that we would glorify our Lord Jesus, uh, not just with our thoughts and with our study, with our uh, right opinions about your word, but by loving our neighbor as ourself, giving sacrificially for others. Lord, we pray in the name of Jesus, the ever-living word, and we sing as he taught us to pray. When Jesus had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. Thus far the reading of God's word. Our Lord Jesus Christ came to serve. He had a ministry. He was a deacon. He gives us daily bread and does not neglect us. But there is one big difference. Ministers serve what is not their own. Jesus Christ is the source. He gives himself. Do not think you are getting anything else at this meal. You're not getting a warm, fuzzy feeling of communion. You're not getting a stoic feeling of conviction. You're not getting ideas, doctrine, theology in picture form. You're not getting a snack, kids. It's not a snack here, either. You're not getting just a reminder of Jesus. You're getting Jesus. Not physically, his body, of course. But by the Spirit, the real Jesus is communicated to us in this bread in this wine, as we take it in faith. So Christ's ministers right now are giving you what is way beyond their power to give. But it's Jesus. Feed upon Christ in your soul. Trust him with your life. We invite to the Lord's table all those who are baptized and under the authority of Christ and his body, the church. By eating the bread and drinking the wine with us, you're acknowledging that you are a sinner.
0: and blessings.